Well, let's uh, continue as we've been in this study of Matthew. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you would uh, take these words. Uh, I pray that you would prepare my heart and that as a, my heart is prepared, you would speak your heart through me. And I, I ask the Holy Spirit come and do that in your name. Amen. You know, this is the season of graduation, so my wife and I have gone to a few graduations. We were at one the other, the other night. And uh, it's interesting that when you, when you know who someone is or an aspect of someone, a whole new world kind of opens up to you, and, and you listen differently, you engage differently. And so we're at this graduation. Someone said, you know, come sit with us. And when we knew, we sit down at this table and there's three other people we didn't know. And so we introduced ourselves and they, we started asking the questions, what do you do? One, one lady started sharing about the fact that they work with the mother of the daughter who's graduating and, and how the different territories of where she goes. And one of the things that I didn't hear as she was sharing about these different territories throughout Minnesota was that I didn't hear the Northwest Quadrant. And since my wife's from that area, I thought, do you ever go to Thief River Falls? And that, those three words, Thief River Falls, she goes, Thief River Falls? How do you know about Thief River Falls? My husband is from Thief River Falls, pointing to him. And, and, he, and she goes, he's a Wendell. And my wife goes, well, do you know a John Wendell? And he goes, I'm John Wendell. And thus opened a whole new world in a 10-minute, 15-minute stop became a 45-hour-long stop. As John Wendell is my wife's brother, a friend of my wife's brother, some eight years older than her, who she saw and knew, who ended up go, went hunting with him, got chased up a tree by a moose with him, all these things. Well, what I want to share with you is we come to Matthew chapter 16 and 17, and as I've titled this, Living with Spiritual Insight, the whole reason that he puts this in here, the whole reason this happens at this point in the life of Jesus, is he is seeking to help them understand who he is, why he's come, what he's doing, so that as they begin to understand that, that understanding opens up for them a whole new world, brings them to a whole different place. There is something incredibly true about this. That as you begin to understand, not the ways of the church and not some religious traditions and not some things even just about the Bible, but when you begin to understand who Jesus is and how your relationship to him is so markedly different because of who he is and why he's come and what he can do in you, it opens up worlds of opportunities. So, as you look at this passage of Scripture, and we look at 16 and 17 in this Living with Spiritual Insight, this passage, specifically Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13, is, is a very interesting passage because it, it further elaborates who Jesus is for the sake of Peter and these three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And these 13 verses are so full, they're so packed with theological illusions and, and realities that honestly, I could probably get about four messages out of here, and a really good preacher could get 25. And so as I look at this, New Testament scholar Don Carson writes, the story has so many nuances, allusions to Moses, his experience of glory, his role in redemptive history, 
Allusions to Elijah, his role as an eschatological forerunner, big word for meaning someone who, run, you know, who is a forerunner for the future or things in the future. Jesus' baptism, the voice from heaven, which you've read about earlier in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Hints of a second coming, the Old Testament Shekinah glory, and on and on and on. And Don Carson says the narrative is clearly a major turning point in Jesus' self-disclosure. There is something that we need to pay attention to in this 13 verses that change an understanding of how you walk with Jesus. And what's interesting in these 13 verses is there are certain times where you can see when Jesus wants you to pay attention, he'll say something like, truly, truly. And we'll see that just in, in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 16, which we read last week. You know, the sad thing about the notations of verses and chapters in the Bible is what it does is it, it, it artificially separates things that I think are supposed to go together if you're just to read it like a story. So if you were reading Matthew's gospel the way it was originally written, you would read from that one paragraph to the next without hardly any stopping. And you would see when Jesus is truly about the end times here, it moves right into this passage of the transfiguration and it would give you this sense of flow you don't get the way we normally read. Another reason why this is such an important passage and I think such a high point is because when you find something similar in all three Gospels, you know this is something that is to stand out. So in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, After six days, Matthew writes, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the, as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. I mean, get this scene. I mean, you got to go, whoa. This is, this is a big deal. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If, if you wish, I'll put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still babbling or speaking... A bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up. He said, Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, They saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then did the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. And in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Well, let me take just a few minutes to throw out some of these truths that I think are some of the, um, what I call interesting and important and encouraging lessons that we won't really get to, and I hope I can just go through them quickly and then we'll get into the message, okay? And the first one is this. It's a very simple thing as you move from verse 27 to verse 28. 
Remember, Jesus ends with sharing the spiritual insight that it's not about the me-first lifestyle. It's not about power, control, manipulation that we use to get what we want, but it's about following the path of the Father, which is the means the Father is put first, and you follow in that way. And as you follow in that way, you begin to learn the self-revealing, self-sacrificing, self-denying life of love, and you live that out. And, and so he's just made this comment, and, and the point is, as we move to this transfiguration, that he wants you to see is that this is a prefiguring. The transfiguration points to the fact that Jesus will come again in glory. It is, it is this, this allusion to the second coming of Christ. This account is a preview of a truth to come. In fact, if you read it with 27 and 28, if you look at verse 27, for the Son of Man, he ends, is going to come with his Father's glory, with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of of Man coming in his kingdom. And if you continue to read on, you read, they go for six days, they go up in this mountain, and before them to transfigure, it's Jesus. Jesus, the prophet, prophesies here his return. And as God often will do when there are prophetic words, He gives you a glimpse beforehand of what will someday be. That's just the way God works. He works that way in our lives as well. Sometimes God will come and he'll give you a word and he'll give you something that will encourage you that you see that gives you the faith to sustain to what it's going to be. And some of you are living with words. Some of you could stand up and testify how God has spoken to you at one time, gave you a word, and, and years later, if you didn't try to frame it and make it what you want it to be and, and try and manipulate what you thought God wanted, but you live it out in faithful, humble obedience, you find that that word was a word given to you to strengthen your faith to get to where you're supposed to be. This is a transfiguration, a glimpse of, of what Jesus is seen here to what he will be someday in the second coming. There's another thing. I think another truth is Jesus shows us that personal suffering ends with glory. That's another reason I think this is put here. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, guys, I'm going to endure the cross. He just reveals to them this whole idea of self-denial. I will suffer and experience deep humiliation, and yet I will be exalted. Glory awaits. Rest assured, guys, your denial and death, the cross you carry, will lead to life and fulfillment. The satisfaction or the, grat- the, the delay of gratification today will be someday fully satisfied. You will experience from the other end of this suffering glory. And some of you need to hear that message right now. I know in our congregation, some have experienced loss of, 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 of a loved one. Some of you have heard news that's been just devastating. Some of you have experienced, and I had people, a couple people after the second service, first service today come up to me and share and say, this was just for me. And heard news of some things where you're just going, ah, this is so difficult. And it may not be just, it may be choices of your own that put you here and now you're starting to follow the Lord. Or it may be that there is just some things that have come to your life. It could be that there are some traumas, wounds, and things that have affected you. As you're walking it out and you seek in obedience to follow the Lord Jesus, and you seek to not live out of your flesh, but follow what His Spirit prompts you to do, walk in the truth, know this, your suffering will not be the end. So he transfigures before him so they can see that although they've been told a message of suffering or resurrection is coming, a second coming is coming. And then he goes on, and, and there's another thing here that I think we're to see. Jesus reveals the true cost of his love. It's not just of what's going to be. They had the opportunity in that moment to see 
who Jesus really was. Here is Jesus, who is with his Father and with the Spirit for eternity, choosing to, hum- to humble himself, enter into this life. And as he enters into this life, he serves and sacrifices and denies. He has all the ability by the power that he has, but he doesn't take those rights to do anything but to serve out of love and even to the point of death. And he has this ability to show the love of God. And they see this incredible person, Jesus, who gives up all this in order to love them to love you to love me which is the same thing that he has for us he has the ability for us this is part of the process and journey of life it's for me one of the things that i'm seeking to grow in and that is the ability to set aside and to put aside your rights to set aside the things that that normally keep you from serving and, and acting in love towards someone else. So to begin to move into that, and you have the opportunity where you live, in your home, with those that you love, with those that are in your work world, those within your relational world, you have the opportunity to say, here, just like Jesus, I step in and I come and I sacrifice, I put aside that I might love you, that I might in, in this way move you more closely to an understanding of the love that God has. And they see that. This is so important. The Apostle Paul in one of the earliest church choruses writes in Philippians 2. It highlights the sacrificial love of Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself And became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. You don't realize, but that that was a chorus. That wasn't something Paul wrote. That was a chorus the church sang because of the incredible um, truth that you see even in this this transfiguration where they saw this incredible height and depth and service and love that Jesus came to do. And the last is this. This whole passage, you could talk about the way that Jesus models what I call spiritual formation. How he, Think about it. Jesus is God in flesh. And Jesus in God in flesh found it important that he needed time to get away from the rush and routine of life. He needed to separate himself. He needed to go to a high place where he would be in a position where he would see clearly and he would be able to, with the nature around him, in this alone place, to be able to go to, to his father, to hear his voice so his voice could begin to shape the destiny and who he was to be. Jesus did that. I mean, how much more us? If you read here in chapter 17, verse 1, this, this habit of Jesus getting close to God. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Six days was probably the time it took for them to travel from Caesarea Philippi, from the base of Mount Hermon, all the way back to Galilee and Capernaum. It took probably about six days. Led them up a high mountain, which is interesting here is where did this occur? People have wondered, and some have thought, well, maybe it was right where they were at in Caesarea Philippi, but then why six days, unless it was six days to climb it, but then they wouldn't be in Capernaum, so that doesn't make sense. Mount Hermon, which they were at prior to this, for some reason, I I just think if the climate would be just too cold. It's too high, it's too cold, it's 9,000 feet up. Luke actually says in his gospel that they descended the mountain the next day, which would be impossible. 
Some have thought the traditional idea is they went to Mount Tabor, but if they went to Mount Tabor, that would be a really way out of the way in the six days for them to get there. And that mountain is not a high mountain. It's only about 1,900 feet in elevation. And one scholar, Walter Leifeld, was a person who I had at Trinity who, who um, as he worked through this, thought, and it makes sense, it would be Mount Myron. It was a high mountain, about 4,000 feet in elevation. It was an easily scalable mountain. It was about six days' journey back to Capernaum. It was actually inside the borders of Israel. And it would make sense of the verses that were to follow, because Jesus takes three up with them, leaves the remainder of the disciples down. When they come back down, he finds there's a whole crowd around the disciples. They knew they were the disciples, the followers of Jesus. So they probably were in an Israelite area. And there is a man who brought their son to be healed and said, I brought my son to your rabbis in training, Master Rabbi, and they couldn't do anything about it. So there's a good chance that's where it took place. But what you note here is he led them up by themselves, Peter, James, and John. And I think it's interesting what Jesus is doing. He takes them up with him to pray. It's something you see often in Jesus' life. He would go to remote places. He would go to, to like the Mount of Olives, the, the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he do? He would go there and he would take three of his inner circle with him. And he said, would you guys just pray with me as he was under this, this strain? Well, here he is. He's experiencing again what he's going to have to go through. He goes up to a mountain in order to be with his father, to hear his father, takes the three with him so that they would be with him. I don't think he went up with the idea that when he gets up there, he's going to kind of go, do this kind of like a Star Trek transfiguration thing. I think he went up there to, to speak with his father. And I think what happens often in people's lives, and you can talk to people who have had visions or experiences, what happens is when you move to that place, there is this opportunity where God sometimes moves in such ways that you didn't plan on it, but it happens for the sake of yourself or maybe others. And so the whole idea here, I think, of a mountain is that it's remote, it gives you a view, it's the nature, the height... Jesus was putting his spirit close to God. With a soft heart, he found a place where he could quiet his heart and listen to God. So that his, Jesus' spirit could be formed. And it just makes me ask, it makes me ask, as you think about it, is there places where your heart's soft, places that you can go, places where you maybe you get this when you go on a walk. Maybe you need to get into your own you know, little closet space. Uh, maybe you've never done this. But there's something incredibly powerful that Jesus shows us in this passage of Scripture where you have an experience with God when you, when you get away. And it doesn't happen every time, but it, as you just make that your practice, your practice is to say, God, I just want to be close to you. I want to be close to you. God comes up and sometimes does things you wouldn't imagine, speaks to you. Now, as I said, that's kind of those four little things that I thought were kind of important that might be good to talk about. I want to now just talk about what I think is the primary thing we're to see here. And I think this is incredibly important because it, it is, I think, the thing that Matthew wants people to see, that Jesus was allowed by his Father for them to see. And it's this. Jesus is the source of revelation, of love, and of what it means in life, what it means to have a life, the kind of life that God wants us to have. And so I, I just encourage you, if, 
If you want to know and experience God, if you want to know and experience and express real transforming love, if you want the kind of life your heavenly Father has and is always intended for you to have, this passage makes it really clear. Look to Jesus. Keep your eye on Jesus. In Jesus' glory. And if you choose to, in a loving, humble, and a hungry-hearted way, come before God in, in, in that process of, of your journey and say, God, I want to know you, and you seek to relate to this Jesus through his word and through prayer and in relationship with others who are seeking and hungry and, and following after him, there you will find God. There the Spirit of God will begin to speak to you. Beyond the mere look, though, what I think is really interesting in this passage of Scripture, they're looking at Jesus, but what happens? The Father interrupts things in His voice. He has to speak. It's as if God can't hold back. The Father says, don't just look, listen. This is highly imperative. Listen to Him. I'll say it again, and and I believe this is really true, because it is the, the ear, the ear of the heart, the ear of the Spirit, that I believe is the most sensitive spiritual organ to God. Faith comes by what? God called Abraham. And so what Jesus is, is showing us here is not as he reveals his glory, but the Father then interrupts and says, if you really want to hear the Spirit and you really want to walk in my ways, have your heart open to it so that I can speak to you. Now, you need to understand Chapter 17, verse 5, is the high point of this whole story where this voice comes and he says, this is my son. This is, this is my son. I really, really like him. He's a really cool guy. I mean, he's incredible, my son. I asked him to do the hard things and he obeys. So I want you to watch him. And not only that, I want you to listen to him. And when I say that, as I was writing this and processing this and thinking about it, I just was encouraged again. Just think about this. God has hardwired every one of us, every one of you, to hear the Spirit of God. Everybody. Everybody in this whole world. He has created us in His likeness, and in His likeness He has created with us the ability to hear the Spirit of God. We have, from the manufacturer, an opportunity to engage with the very voice of God. Now think about it. At this time, right now, there are all kinds of communication signals and sound waves going through. And if you wanted to, you could take out your iPad, iPhone, i this, i that, your your um, what's a Droid. But you won't get those signals communicated unless it's what it's turned on. And if you turn it on, you have the opportunity to catch some signals because of that frequency. Do you know that's exactly the way it is with the voice of God? The voice of God looks for the heart that basically, in the way it's turned on, says, God, I need you. I'm desperate. I recognize my sin. I recognize that I, that I have blown it. I, it's really amazing. I've prayed with a number of people over the last few months, and I've sat down with them, and I've asked where you're at in your faith journey, and they'll share with me often. I'm, I'm not anywhere, and I'll, I have the opportunity to say this is the coolest thing. Are you willing to admit that you've blown it? Yeah. It's amazing how people will go, yeah. I, well, are you willing, willing to admit that you need God? Yeah. Are you willing to say that you would like Jesus to come in and to, to forgive you of that and to begin to guide you and move in your life? And they go, yeah. Are you willing to receive the Holy Spirit so you can begin to listen and hear and walk according to His Word? Yeah. 
If that's where you're at and you've never said, you know, you, you, you've come to church and you've been involved and you've, and you've read his word, but you've never just even said, God, I want to hear you. I, want to, I really want to walk with you in a, in a, in a way where you um, become alive to me. You're hardwired for that. And he just says, just be open to it. So back to the primary lesson. Here's the source of revelation is always Jesus. Jesus himself shows himself through his word. It is his word in community with other believers. It's his word as it's been shown through the tradition of the church. And as we walk that out, he begins to guide us and move in every person's life. You can have that kind of personal relationship with him. And so Matthew chapter 16 is this, this living with spiritual insight. He was trying to open their eyes. So you come to verses 1 through 4, which we've talked about. Here are people, the religious authorities, who should be able to see, who should be able to hear. And they're as, they're as, they're as blind as bats and they're as deaf as doorknobs. And then you go to verses 5 through 12. And the people who you wouldn't think would get it, the JV, the B squad, these group of people who are highly dysfunctional, who are following him because they're desperate, they understand their need, they can hear because he helps them hear. And then as they move along in chapter 13, verses 20 of 16, Peter, at one point, Jesus needs to know, you guys get it, do you understand who I am? He asks him who he is, and Peter has this outstanding moment. He gets the star for the day. He goes, yeah, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus is going, finally, they're getting it. But Peter, even that God the Father has revealed to you. And then he goes, this is good, Jesus in his heart, in his mind. So verses 21 to 28, which we looked at last week, here comes Jesus. And he goes, now they're getting it. I'm going to share with them not only who I am, but why I've come and what it means and how to walk that way. And he begins to share that with them. And Jesus, in just moments before, Peter's great confession now becomes his, his great blunder. As Jesus shares with him from a, uh, the fact that, that he has to deny himself, that he is going to suffer and that he is going to go to a death, Peter says, no way, no, this never happened. And, and he has to rebuke him at that moment and correct his thoughts and say, you're thinking the way Satan does. This is a me-first mindset. We'll never get God's way in your life. It's always a father-first mindset. And so now we come to verses 1 through 13. What I find is interesting Peter gets it and, and, and says, here's who you are, Jesus. He doesn't get it, and neither do the disciples. They don't understand the way, the sense of what I call self-sacrificial love, not power, manipulation, control, the things that we always do in relationship. That's what messes up your relationship, is, is power, manipulation, and control. Inability to be honest with what's going on. But through self-revelation, that kind of authenticity, where you then begin to self-sacrifice and you call on the power of God to love through you, things begin to shift, things begin to change. So now he moves into this next one. And Peter still needs to be dialed up a little bit more in his understanding because he still doesn't see Jesus who he is. He hasn't had the Thief River Falls moment that opens up his world to him. And so, now let's get into the message. You thought we'd never get here. Verses 1 through 2 of 17. Jesus takes the inner circle up the mountain to pray with him. While Jesus is praying, his face begins to glow. His clothes, which have been dirty, dusty, probably somewhat worn and torn from the climb up, turns bleach white. He doesn't use Tide, Clorox, or Bounce. And I don't even know what Bounce is, but I thought it would be good if just kind of add that. He's actually transformed before his, their eyes. The word is metamorphosis. It's the idea of that kind of complete transformation from something that is to something completely, in a sense, different. From a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's a different nature. So here is Jesus, veiled by our human flesh and the weakness of that, the physical body, now in a moment is transformed. And I don't think he went up there to do this for them. I think he's in prayer. And God the Father knows that Peter needs to see something. And so he's transformed. He begins to show the glory of God, his whole body from the inside out. 
is expressing the glory of God. And it's not just an enhancement, folks. They're seeing God in flesh. And as he's being transformed, he's praying. And this gives you something in the prayer life of Jesus that's a little different than what we might experience. He's praying, he's talking with his father very freely, and he's talking with Moses and Elijah. They show up. We have a hard time with this, but throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, throughout the church, the early church, throughout the church in areas of China and in Muslim worlds, they see visions. They see this isn't strange. This is it may be different, but it's not something unusual. God shows up. So here they are looking at him. And here are these disciples who are usually falling asleep because they can't pray like Jesus can pray. I mean, it does take a training of one's heart and spirit to move into this. Don't expect to go and I'm going to go hour in prayer. You know, it's how many run a 26 mile marathon the next day? Usually you do a little five. You know, they say from the couch off. That's the first thing you do. This may be the way it is in your own life, spiritual formation. So here they are. They're looking at Jesus. As they're looking, the father goes, you know, I'm going to pull the curtain away so they can see into the realm of the spirit. And standing before them is Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us this, that as they're talking, they're talking about Jesus' soon departure. The words actually in Luke mean exodus. He's talking to Moses, who led a whole group of people from bondage to slavery. He's talking to him about the exodus that he will do for all of us. This is the exodus that we we all have in our hearts been waiting for. It is the ability for the power of God to come in, to move us, to take our self-centeredness and our sin and those things which hold us back, to break that and the power and the bondage of Satan by the cross, forgiving us so that we begin to live in this life of grace and forgiveness and we continue to walk it out as the best of our ability, blowing it, recognizing when we blow it, when we blow it, confessing it, getting right with the person, walking more fully so that the power of God can begin to shine through us, that people see authentic self revealing self-sacrificing, loving people. That is what the world is hungry for. That's what I want to become. That's what I want us to become. That's what the Father wants. So he's talking to them about their departure. And I love this picture because Peter's like me, probably, ever the nervous talker. Is this going on, and he's going, this is really cool. He doesn't know what to say, but he feels he has to say something. You ever have someone like that in your family? Well, he's praying, and he's glowing, and these things are happening, and he's being transfigured. And, uh, and Peter makes this comment. I, I think he goes, Lord, this is so cool. If you wish, if you want to... I mean, you three prophets are the big guys in the whole story here. I'll build temporary shelters because we could stay the night. And you, you know, we don't need shelters, but we'll, I'll build them for you. It's like, wow, this is so incredible. Let's stay here and soak this in. Let's get some of those temporary tabernacles, what they're called. It's, it's, it's what they built when they were going through the wilderness. And, and, and they were even built a tabernacle for the Lord, which is a temporary shelter, so that someday he would have a, a full temple, so that someday the temple would come in Jesus. And so that someday the temple would come in your hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so here's this ever-nervous talking. And uh, Luke gives you the idea that he's just babbling. Catch what Matthew says in verse 5. While he was still speaking. It's like God's going, I've got to shut this guy up. While he was still speaking. It's almost as if he's saying, enough, Peter. You've seen Jesus in his glory, but you still 
you still don't get it. You haven't had that thief or falls moment where you opened up the world to who really Jesus, who this person is. You've been walking with him, you've seen these things, you understand he's the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. You didn't really understand the way, but there's something more you need to see. You still don't get it. You have actually put him on the same level with Moses and Elijah, and Jesus is just one more. But you need to know something. He is not like Moses and Elijah. He's far different. In fact, Moses and Elijah were there to show him that Moses was the giver of the law. Elijah was the guardian of the law. He is, these two are pointing to the true fulfillment of the law, who is unique, unlike any other. He is not like some prophet that you would see in Islam, just one along the chain, or Jehovah Witnesses. He's not like some yogi who's just a little more spiritually enlightened. He is not in any way, this just this, uh, a little bit change of a new giver. He gives a whole new law, which is a law that rules you by the love of God, through the Holy Spirit, through your heart, so that you don't need the law anymore. You have the law of God living through your heart. And he goes, you know, that's what I want you to see. So, here is this Jesus who, not like Moses when he comes down the mountain, reflects the glory of God. But unlike Moses, emanates from within the very glory of God. Peter still isn't quite sure. He's not getting it. God interrupts a moment with this cloud. Peter needs to see clearly so he can hear Jesus fully. We need to see Jesus clearly so we can hear Jesus fully. This cloud envelops all three, and again, all kinds of allusions to the Old Testament Shekinah glory. The, the, the Jews were understanding this is the glory of God. The clouds descended. It's emanating glory from Jesus. And a voice says, guys, his voice out of heaven says, guys, catch this. I told you once before at the baptism, at the beginning of the ministry, I'm going to tell you now as we come to the end of the ministry, this is my son. I'm thrilled with him. He looks at you and me in the eyes and he says, this is my son. This is my son. And the way he lives, I'm thrilled with him. I ask you to follow him. Because in him, you will know the glory of God. And so you look at verse 6 to 8, and I ask myself, if God were to speak to you, what would you do? Ever thought of that? If the voice of God, I'm not, you know, most of us, if you've had this experience, I've had it where you either, you maybe even hear words or you get this impression on your spirit, I've had that. That, that's like the little bit of the energy of God. He, he usually even uses angels because I think it's if the voice of God spoke to you, you would fall down in your face and be terrified. Hearing God, they fell on their face to the ground, terrified, which means they were completely undone, fully unwound. Their system was on overload. In the presence of the divine energy of God, you will involuntarily lose control, feel as if you're falling apart, be slain in a sense. And one's voice, think about it, emits energy. Studies science tell us that. It emits energy. Think about the energy of God's undiluted voice so great that your system shorts out. It is almost as if you're tasered by God. And then I love this next verse. Verse 7. Here's the incredible grace of God which I need in my life. And you know you've blown it or you, you feel undone. You're, you're, you're unwound. Verse 7 is so cool. It's, it's but Jesus. 
But Jesus came. Jesus, the whole expression of God, who's just revealed the glory of God, reaches down and touches them, touches you, right in your brokenness. He says, I'm here out of grace and mercy. Get up. And he says, don't be afraid. Quit blaming yourself. Quit moving into this past sense of guilt. Quit allowing the, 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 the wounds of your past and the, the, the needs that are driving you and the conflicts that are in place. Don't let... The, you're, you're in my presence. You receive grace. And I don't want you to walk in fear. I want you to walk in confidence of who I've made you to be. You need to deal with the wounds of your past. You need to deal with those unmet needs. You need to deal with unresolved conflicts. But He will help you do that if you will walk in the grace and the confidence and courage of who God has called you to be. And so it says that Jesus came and He touched them and He said, Get up, don't be afraid. I am here in my glory and power and grace to love you day in and day out into the very presence of God. I have called you not to live someday for heaven. This is not about some decision to get into heaven someday. It's about a decision to bring heaven into your life right now, to walk in that, even though at times you will experience the hell of suffering. You will walk in this, and in this sacrificial, self-revealing love with one another, you will experience the power and the glory of God. You will go back to what God always intended when you were in the garden, where you were naked and unashamed and unfolded to the power and presence of God. God's power and presence is available for you in that place. We tend to, I tend to lose it because of my humanness, move into pride, move into judgment of others, move into all these other things. And we're, we're, we're kind of people because of our insecurities that we're moving always into this area. And we're called back by the grace of God to desperately long for this broken understanding that I need God more than anything else. And the people around me need God in me more than anything else. Isn't that true? And then verse 8. Here's the key to it all. He touches them. He says, get up, don't be afraid. Listen to verse 8. When they looked up, God the Father, I want to make this really clear, they saw no one except Jesus. Standing before them was only uniquely just Jesus. He is the source of revelation. He is the source of the kind of love that will change your life and others. He is the source of the kind of life that God the Father has that He wants you to enjoy. The shalom sense of peace in your heart, in your being. He alone reveals and relates you to God. And when you relate to Him in that way, He also relates you to others in love. And so as I was writing this, I came to this point. I thought, you know, I just want to declare three things. One is this, we will be a people who listen to Jesus, just Jesus. No one except Jesus. We, that means we have to understand the things that, that, that color our sight and cause us not to see clearly. Good things like traditions that sometimes keep us from actually loving people the way that we're to love them. Because we get caught up in those things thinking they bring us a sense of righteousness. They don't. They're not bad, but they don't help us. At certain points, he calls us to listen to Jesus, just Jesus. We will be a people who will follow the law of Jesus. This new law wasn't just an upgrade. It's the law that was always read. He said, I give you a new commandment, but really it's not new, says Jesus. It's the one that was always meant. The law of Jesus is the law of love, which comes when you open your heart to, to him and the Holy Spirit. So now the Holy Spirit begins to rule through you through love. We will be a people who will be ruled by love. And we will be a people who obey the voice of God as it's revealed in His Word. 
and as he reveals himself to us so that we can live the life of God in our lives and in this world that he's called us to. If you go on to these verses, and I'll just make this really quick. In verse 9, he says, don't tell. This is the fifth and final time he tells the disciples, don't tell. Because the reason he doesn't want them to tell is because if they people get a wind of this experience of the glory of who Jesus is, they're not going to take him and allow him to do the suffering that would lead to their life. He, they're going to want to cause him to be the king and to move back into manipulation, control, all the injustices that happen from that, all the hurts that happen from that, so that we move back into this place where we force people to do what we want rather than to live and a self-revealing, self-sacrificing kind of love. And so he says, I want you to, to not talk about it. And then they go on, but we got one question coming down the hill here. What about John the Baptist? You know, the way they've always understood John the Baptist is that he's to come first, restore all things. Jesus says, you know, they're right about that, but they got it wrong. When he came, they didn't listen to him, and they're going to do to me what they did to him. And there are times, folks, when God will speak to you or speak to us, and it will be contrary to what the traditions or what other churches are doing or what, what you might be doing. It's not contrary to Scripture, but it's contrary to maybe what others might think, what seems to be the end thing. And as you walk into it, what you will find is that you will have to, all, with all courage and strength, stand up in who God has made you to be. It may be that you have to do that in work when you need to speak the truth to someone, or you need to do that with someone you love where you speak the truth. It's those kind of occasions when the voice of God comes. Or you may be called to build an ark, and you're going, why build an ark when it's going to rain? But we will obey the voice of God and not fall to the fear of men and not become cowards to the injustices that seek to rule this world. Well, I'm about done. I... I'm so excited about what God is doing. I, I stand up here, and I'll be honest, as I preach, I just sense, I sense God in this. this is, I just give Him glory because I believe He wants something for us. He's preparing something for us that by His Spirit He wants to do. And that's why He's calling us through these messages, to know just Jesus. And that's why he's calling each and every person here. He's giving you an opportunity. In some ways, it's, it's bad you're here, because the more you know, the more you're responsible for. But the good part of it is this. Each and every one of you have been hardwired to hear the Spirit of God, to move into the things of the Spirit of God. And I'm not saying it's always this glorious, miraculous kind of thing. It's sometimes just suffering, mundane, and hard. But glory awaits. So I'm going to ask the team to come, and we're going to close with the song. And I'm going to ask you to come just as you are before Lord and say, Father, would you listen? And I'm going to ask Andrew to put this on here, because as they start to pray, I'm going to ask you to stand, and I want to pray a blessing over you. So if you'd stand, and I want to pray this. I bless you with an awakening with awakening your spirit to the voice of God, to turning your spiritual ears to Him. I bless you with being fully engaged, with listening as a deliberate choice you make a training you practice and a process. Ask God to cleanse and alert your ears so that what you hear will not be dull or defiled. I bless you with fine-tuned ears to hear so the sound of heaven will open the heavenly spirit realm to you. Amen.